This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. First John chapter 5, we're looking at the very last verse of First John. And we're looking at that because for our guests, we've been in a series since the 1st of January in 1st John, and we're wrapping that series up uh, today. And it coincides with Palm Sunday, and I thought, you know, as I'm preparing for the message, and I know this Sunday is Palm Sunday, and then I realized, God, there is a great connection between what John said and what happened on Palm Sunday. And I want to kind of take us there and, and explain that. Uh, if I might. Uh, next Sunday's Easter, we're going to be a packed out house, all right? So, and, and partially because our folks here are going to be inviting their friends. Pick up, uh, get a copy of the, um, in fact, I have one in my pocket somewhere, uh, one of the invite cards and uh, that we have for you to take and invite your friends to come next Sunday with you uh, to church. So, uh, we'll fill, we got a lot of extra chairs we've got yet to set up. So, I'm looking, I always look forward to Easter, don't you? Big, big time to share the gospel. Uh, Palm Sunday, which is today, uh, has always been something of a paradox to me. Uh, I, I, I have not really, since I became a Christian when I was 10, have never really be, been part of a church that's very liturgical. And, you know, you go to some churches and today, boy, it's a, you know, you get palm branches and you get all kinds of things. And, and I've never since, bef- you know, in my very young days maybe, but not since I, I became a Christian, have I been involved in churches that really made a big deal out of Palm Sunday, although it's a big deal. And, uh, and, but it's been a paradox to me, and I'll explain that, because it's just a few days after Jesus did what most would say was his greatest miracle yet up to that point, and that was raising Lazarus from the dead, this man who had been dead for four days. And Jesus in the town of Bethany, just four miles from Jerusalem, had raised this man from the dead. And so now it's Sunday following that miracle. And Jesus is traveling now from Bethany, which is to the southwest a bit of Jerusalem, uh, just four miles away. He's traveling to Jerusalem for the week that begins the week of Passover, which was their annual great festival celebrating the Hebrews' freedom from slavery in Egypt. And as he got to Jerusalem, we'll read some scriptures about what happened that day. But as they got to Jerusalem, they were calling him things like king. Here comes our king, they proclaim, many of these people. Where did they get that from? Well, the prophet Zechariah, 500 years before Palm Sunday, had foretold the arrival of the Messiah, the one they've been looking for in Judaism um, for all of their existence, the Messiah that God would send. And he said, this is what's going to happen when he shows up. As Israel's conquering king, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. See, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. Now, most conquering kings would enter a city riding on a you know, big white steed, you know, big white horse and, and with soldiers. He's going to come to you. God gave Zechariah this prophecy to tell them he's going to come to you riding on a donkey's colt. Jesus knew that prophecy, didn't he? He knew Zechariah 
And so he knew when he sent his disciples, he says, I want you to go over to such and such a house, and, and there there's going to be a, 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 a mama donkey and her colt. And I want you to get them and bring them to me, and I'm going to ride that colt into Jerusalem. And if they ask you, well, wait, 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 what are you doing taking our animals? You just say, the Lord has need of them, and they'll let you have them. That's what Jesus told them. And so he knew by sending them to get the donkey, he knew by riding into, into Jerusalem on this donkey at the onset of Passover week, he knew the implication. He knew what he was saying to everybody who was there observing that. He was saying without saying a word, he was saying, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. I am Messiah. There was no doubt about it. He wasn't hiding it. Now was the time, no holding back. And so as he approaches the city, they hailed him. They, they began coming with Jesus from Bethany. He's going to Jerusalem. Let's go with him. Crowds. And there are already crowds going into Jerusalem for the Passover. And they come with him. And the talk is all about Jesus healing this man, raising this man from the dead. He, he must be Messiah. And it's building and building and building. So as he approached the city, they hailed him. Somebody said, let's make him a little bit more comfortable on this donkey. We've got no saddle. Let's put some coats on it. So they put their coats on the back of the animal. They threw palm branches down on the dusty streets. And they quoted from from Psalm 115, verses 25 and 26. Matthew gives us what they said here. Matthew says in Matthew 21, Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who, kept, kept, who followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This isn't just for us to shout. Hosanna, this is for the angels to shout. This is for all of heaven to shout. Hosanna, what does Hosanna mean? Hosanna is, was a Hebrew term that means save us now. Save us now. I really believe they were looking for Jesus to save them, but not like we think of salvation. They were looking to Jesus to save them from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. They called him son of David. And they used that phrase, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, making it clear that they were recognizing him as being the heir to David's throne. We know that he was. If you read in Christmas time, we go to Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, and you read those passages, and you have the genealogy of Jesus, and he comes through the line of David. He was the heir to David's throne. And they were calling him this now. The Jewish people understood that with the coming of the Messiah would, would be the coming of the kingdom. That's what they were hoping for. That was their great hope. And, and we sang it a few moments ago. Hadn't Jesus instructed his disciples when, he, when they said, there at the, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, they said, can you teach us to pray? And he said, sure. And one of the things he taught them to pray for was what? Your kingdom come. Pray for the coming of the kingdom. Now, they didn't get that he was the coming king. Yet. But they were praying for that. They, Israel has been praying for that since David's time. That was their great hope. Palm Sunday, the crowd thought, today is the day. The kingdom has arrived because there's the king. He's coming to reclaim, to reclaim the kingdom. But here's the deal. Were they right? No. Not yet. They were wrong. And I think this is their, 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 um, their wrong assumption that today 
the kingdom has arrived, that he's come, he's going he's to run Herod, he's going to run the, run the Romans out of Jerusalem and take over, and we'll have our country back. Today is the day. That wrong assumption was huge. All this was happening. Words rapidly spreading through the streets as they approached Jerusalem, and the word begins to spread all the way through the city about what's getting ready to happen as they come down the Mount of Olives and cross the Brook Kidron there at the base of the mountain of that hill and, and go over into the city, in through the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And word spreads throughout the city, the crowded streets of the city that are overcrowded because of all the crowds arriving from every direction for Passover. What in the world is going on over there? And it comes to them, people are saying, what's happening? This man on a donkey, and the scripture says when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken, saying, who is this? And the crowds kept saying, answering the question, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, the crowd that he came with from Bethany, I'm certain that there were believers in him as the Christ, as the Savior. His disciples, 11, or at least 11 of the 12 at the time, I think believed in him as Savior. You know, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They knew that. And I'm sure there were others with them that knew that as well. Maybe Mary and, and, and Martha uh, were there, Lazarus' sisters. Maybe Lazarus was there himself. I'm sure he probably was. Why is he going to miss this? I bet Zacchaeus, the wee little man, who just days before had come down out of that sycamore tree and put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, had his life totally transformed. He's probably there, but nobody can see him because he's so short. You know, he's in the crowd. But he's there, I would think. But lots of believers were probably there. Yet John, who was there, wrote this about his disciples. In John 12, 16, he said his disciples did not understand these things at first. As the people are calling him Messiah and King and Hosanna and blessed is he, son of David and all that, the disciples are going, you know, I'm so glad that the disciples were like they were because they're not a lot different from you and me because they're kind of clueless. What in the world's going on here? What in the world's happening? They didn't get it. John said they would figure it out after his ascension to heaven. Then they got it. Here's the paradox for me. All this is happening on Sunday. All these crowds, all this shout, all this proclamation that he is the Messiah. He is here and we're going to adore him. We're going to to honor him. We're going to set him up as king and so forth. And yet by Thursday or Friday, depending on how you do your arithmetic, but by Thursday or Friday, this triumphant king, welcomed and cheered by the throngs, was hanging, crucified, dying on a cross, abandoned by even his closest friends. And the paradox for me is, what happened? What happened between Sunday and crucifixion? We have to ask the question, did this crowd on Sunday that seemingly recognized him as Messiah and the son of David, the king, did this crowd really understand that he is the son of God, the savior? Or were they just looking for a political, military hero who would free them from the Roman Empire. Was this crowd, as so often crowds are, were they just caught up in the emotion of the moment? Obviously, there was some misunderstanding by some, maybe most of these people. For them, Messiah was 
more a political conqueror than the savior of their souls. Somehow they missed the Old Testament predictions of his death to give them life. Somehow they missed the meanings behind the story of Abraham and Isaac offering sacrifice on the mountain. Somehow they missed the meaning of the Passover lamb and the temple sacrifices, which were all meant to teach them that the lamb of God, Jesus, had to die first for our sin before he would come back as our king. And here's the point this morning. They got Jesus wrong. They missed it. They got Jesus wrong. In your notes, point number one is idolatry is an ignorance, a misunderstanding of the real Jesus. It was for the Jews in Jerusalem. I believe the same is true. We'll see this later on for Christians in churches as well. This letter, we're in 1 John, this letter that we've been studying since um, the last 11 weeks from this old apostle is about the essence of fellowship with God. That's a big word that he uses, fellowship. It's a part of our relationship with God. They're not the same thing, but, but fellowship is part of it. And he calls this fellowship that we can as Christians have with Jesus, he calls it in chapter two, walking as Jesus walked. Taking a walk with Jesus and going where he goes and walk, walking as he, what a great way to describe this journey and the fellowship that we have with him. And he identifies Christ, especially here in chapter 5, as the one true God. So in chapter 2, when John wrote to them about being careful, he said, don't love the world or the things that are in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Don't love the world. He knew that whenever a Christian, you or me, compromises our morals in some way, it likely leads to some kind of involvement with idolatry. And idolatry at the end of the first century, and these people that he's writing to are in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, part of the Roman Empire, heavily influenced by, by the Greek culture. He knew, and they knew, in their culture, there were idols everywhere. Everywhere they turned, idolatry was everything in their country, in their culture. So. Second point is loving the world is what pulls Christians away from Christ. When we come to 1 John 5.21, which is where we are, let's, let's read that verse together. It's going to be up on the screen for you. See, you look right there. Let's re read it with me. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. All right Now, let me say to you, for those of you who say, oh, I just can't memorize Scripture yeah, you can. You can memorize that one. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. I, you know, these, these, as we get older, we, is your, my memory is, is getting really, really bad. How about yours? And, and, and I say that, and we chuckle at that, but I say that really somewhat with concern for myself, my memory. Memorizing Scripture is a great thing to do. But, you know, these grandmas say, I can't memorize Scripture. And you say, how many grandkids you got? I got eight grandchildren. Tell me their names and their birthdays. Boom, 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 boom. Just like that, they rattle off their names and their birthdays. Where did that come from? Well, I remember my grandchildren's names and birthdays, of course. Then you can memorize scripture, Grandma. Okay? 
All right, now. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. I always thought this is such an unusual way for John to end this letter. Because he's not mentioned, the word idols isn't anywhere else in the book, this letter. All of a sudden at the end, it's like he tacks it on. Here, it seems without any explanation. It's like he's writing this letter. He, with this quill, he puts the quill down. He rolls up the scroll and halfway through rolling it up, he goes, oh, P.S. One more thing I forgot to say. And he unrolls it and he says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now I'm done. Gail and I were uh, able a number of years ago when Rachel was in school uh, in a college, her short-lived college career, but she was in school in Guatemala taking a semester there, doing some cross-cultural missions things while she did college work as well in the nation of Guatemala. And we said, let's go down and visit. So we went down and spent a week with her in Guatemala and did some sightseeing. Well, it was a great trip, wonderful country. Don't drink the water. Um, uh, we did some sightseeing, and one of the days we got on a, we got on a, on a, on a bus, I think, and, and it, it took us to, um, to a, a town on the shore of this lake in Guatemala. It's called Atitlan is the name of the lake. Has anybody ever been there? It's called the most beautiful lake in the world. And I think perhaps it is because from the side of the lake that we were on, you look across the lake and there are towns on the other side as well. And it's a big lake, blue water. But you look across the lake and there are three, I believe it was three, active volcanoes off in the distance. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. And we said, let's go and see what's on the other side. So we got on a, a ferry that took us to the other side, and we got to the town, little town of Santiago, and we got off the boat, and we said, well, we're, we don't have a clue what's here. And as there always are in places like that, there are local people that say, hey, you can hire me, and I'll show you around. So we hired this local guy. He's about that tall. Everybody over there was about that tall. They're, they're Mayan Indians. Rachel, Rachel was... Um, she was head and shoulders taller than everybody in the country there in, in, uh, in the Mayan country. Um, and, and so we hired him. What, how much will it cost? He told us. We paid him. He's going to show us all around the town. And one of the things that he wanted to be sure that we saw that he was very proud of was the church there in the middle of town. So he took us to the church and, uh, and we went inside this church there, and, and interesting, you have to understand the culture. There is a tremendous, we call it a church, but it is a, it is a combination of Catholicism and paganism. Mayan Indian paganism. And they've done a good job of combining the two and so that people don't know the difference. We saw some things. We walked through a cemetery and saw some practices going on in the cemetery, frankly, that were a bit scary to us. So we went into this church, and he showed us all around. And, of course, all around the, the walls um, were, were all kinds of um, images of saints and apostles and so, Bible characters and so forth. And there were lots of things of Jesus in the building as well. It was interesting to me as a lifelong evangelical that all the portrayals of Jesus, he was either a baby in Mary's arms or he was nailed to a cross. Either a baby in, G in, in Mary's arms, 
or nailed to a cross. Both of them portraying him, frankly, as being helpless. And you know, Rachel speaks Spanish. I spoke a little bit of Spanish. And, and, and uh, he spoke no English. And so in my limited Spanish, I asked this fellow, where is Jesus now? Where is he? And without hesitation, he pointed up on the wall to a figure of Jesus on the cross, crucified on the cross, and he said, Esta allá. There he is. And I got to say to him, No está allá. He's not there. I got to say, Él está en cielo. What does that mean, Ramon? He's in heaven. Seated at the right hand of the Father. I said, he's risen from the grave. That's not him. But a lot of people think that fellow thought that's Jesus. He's not. Idols were big. A big thing in the first century. You, you either were a Jew... And you knew the one God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, or you were a Christian and you knew the God of the Bible as well, but you identified him with Jesus, or you were a pagan. You worshiped the Roman Greek gods in their temples with their real visible idols all around. You offered sacrifices to them. Uh, You practiced their religion and much of their religion involved sexual relationships with temple prostitutes. The pagans had idols. The Old Testament word for them was, remember, graven images. They had idols in their homes, in their yards, all around. These Christians in Asia Minor are idols. They're surrounded with them, and they have come out of that religion to follow Jesus. And John says, guard yourselves from idolatry. Idolatry was part of who they were before coming to know the know Christ, because idolatrous religion was the majority religion of their day. And at the end of the first century, another part of that became emperor worship. That became law in the empire, and they were there were images of the Caesars all over the place, and it was law to proclaim Caesar is Lord. That's why it was so important when Paul wrote those words to the Philippians: "One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess." that Jesus is Lord. Right in the face of the Roman Empire, he said those words. As he was in a Roman jail, he wrote those words. So this was a big thing, and refusing to pronounce Caesar as Lord led to thousands of believers being fed to wild animals or beheaded or crucified. Just a few years after John would write this letter, He would write the book of Revelation in chapter 2, verses 14 and verse 20. He made it very clear that in some of the churches at that time, idolatry was present within the church, and they were practicing in that idolatry immorality in the church of Christ. But this little verse is a great conclusion to the letter, and it isn't as it might seem, a standalone verse. It isn't something that John said, oh yeah, one more thing. Because it's all through this book. He doesn't use the word idol anywhere else, but what has he talked about? It helps them to understand, helps us to understand, me and you to understand the Bible if we understand the verses in their context, doesn't it? If you go back to John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he mentioned to them about the antichrists that were present. 
He wasn't talking about some worldwide leader. He was talking about false teachers. And he goes and he explains a little bit deeper in chapter, chapter 4 about them. Their false teaching was, was different from what they had heard from the apostles. Their false teaching was about Jesus, but they were adding things that weren't in the scriptures. And in chapter 4, he goes into a deeper warning against false teachers of their day who denied that Jesus was actually man and God at the same time. And he said about those false teachers, here's what he said. They are from the world. Oh, remember the world I told you about just a few paragraphs back when I said, don't love the world because the false teachers are from the world. And if you love the world, who are you going to start loving? False teachers. You're going to become idolaters. So in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, this is, how do we overcome? How do we conquer the world? He said, this is the victory that has conquered the world. What is the victory? Our what? Faith. Our faith. But he doesn't let us leave us hanging on what faith is about. There's a lot of, man, is there a lot of terrible confusion amongst Christians today about faith. He wants to make it really clear what faith is about. About So he helps us to understand what he means by faith in the next verse. And he said, and who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Now, the key word there is the word believes. And here's what you may not know because you can't see it in your English translation of the Bible. But the word for faith in verse four and the word for believes in verse five are the same word in the Greek. One is a noun. One is a verb. Faith is the noun, believes is the verb form of the Greek word pestuo, pestuo. It's all the same word. So it means to have faith means to do what? Believe in Christ. Right? That's what he means by the faith that conquers the world. John makes it really clear that the only faith that works to conquer the world, including conquering idolatry, and some of you are going to do that today. You're going to conquer idolatry today. The only thing that works in conquering idolatry is believing in Jesus as the one and only Son of God. Because in chapter 5, verse 20, he calls Jesus, we saw this last week, he calls him the true God. The one true God. And we said last Sunday that the implication there was if there is a one true God, there must also be what? False gods in this world. So he's identifying Jesus. He is the one and the only true God. And that's why he finishes with this last verse. Guard yourselves from idols, from false gods. So let's wrap it up this way. Our culture, by the way, because we're reading this and we're saying, you know what, Rick? I'll be honest with you. I don't notice any statues and any idols as I drive around in people's yards or in people's businesses and so forth. And so I just, we just don't see much of that in 21st America, 21st century America. And I want to, as I describe what idolatry is, I want to say, answer that question with, oh yeah? Because I believe that we do, I think we're a nation eaten up, and even by Christian people with idolatry. So, Let's understand what idolatry truly is. Idolatry, number one, is anything or anyone that gets greater devotion in my life than Jesus. I love the simplicity of the scriptures. I, I, I believe it's my responsibility as a preacher of the word of God 
to present it as simply as I can because I'm a simple-minded guy. <laughs> so let me, let me say this simply. Either Jesus is Lord of your life or he isn't. Okay? He's either Lord, which means top of the heap, the owner of my life, or something else owns my life. He, he can't, the moment somebody else, something else or somebody else steps into that place, Jesus, Jesus drops to a lower position. But something or someone else is, even if it's me, can be somebody's idol. Lord, I hope it's not me. I hope I'm not your idol. I can't even sing like one. Some of you will get that. <laughs> because we have, here's what happens, because in this country we have been blessed with so much, have we not? We've been blessed with so much in this country. A great idol in America must be, I, I have to admit, must be materialism. And the driving passion, and that's what religion is. If you want to say, what def, define religion, it's the driving passion in your life. The driving passion to have wealth and possessions. So this point, another way to say it is, whatever I love more than Jesus is my idol. Or whomever I love more than Jesus is my idol. Secondly, anything, anyone that downplays Jesus as the Son of God is an idol is idolatry. There is a religion in this country that we might call the intellectually elite that tells you and I who are Bible believers, you believe God created the earth? You must be dumber than dirt. You believe that this ancient book is still relevant today? You even believe that God inspired the writers to write it and that it is perfect? How dumb can you be? You know, that's stupid. And the purpose of that intellectually elite thinking is to turn you and me away from Jesus. It's to embarrass us. It's to shame us. Because let's be honest, nobody in this room, I'm sure nobody in this room wants to be thought of as intellectually deficient, do we? I mean, we're all smart people. What do you mean calling me dumb? Well, the evidence says they don't know the evidence. They don't. Write down this passage. Make a note of, of this passage of Scripture. And I, let me encourage you to spend some time with it because it's all about who Jesus is. First, not first, but Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. It's there in, in your New Testament. The problem on that Palm Sunday, let's go, let's go back to Palm Sunday. Can we do that? Because I'm tying the two in, idolatry and Palm Sunday. The problem on that Palm Sunday and the days that followed that week was that they didn't understand, these Jewish people, they didn't understand that Jesus was God's son who came to die as their savior and then to rise again from the dead, and then to ascend into heaven, and then one day to come back as the triumphant king. Then in, they got Jesus wrong.
Number, another point, what's idolatry? Anything or anyone I allow to become my ultimate source of happiness and self-worth above Christ. Let me ask a question. Can relationships with other people become idolatrous? I listened to the young man in the video say some really important things. Here he was, a professing Christian. I'm not going to deny that he knew Christ. That's not up to me. I think he did because he was convicted about the things that were going on in his life. He's sleeping with someone that he's not married to. He knows that's wrong. But did you notice this about idolatry? Because I think that's a great story of idolatry, is it not? Did you notice this about idolatry, that when you're an idol worshiper, Nobody wants to say that about ourselves. When you are, you'll find that that idol, whatever it might be, and he used the word cannot satisfy. I mean, he had the job. He had the income. He had the status. He had the college education. He had the car, whatever, you know, that the world looks and says you need to have all these things. He had them all, and he said they don't satisfy. So he looked for the girl, and that didn't satisfy either. Until he came to the place where he realized the only thing that really can satisfy in my life is not any of these idols that I have accumulated, but the only satisfaction comes from the one and only true Son of God. Great story. But it makes you and me ask the question, can relationships become idols? And let me close with this point. If the most important relationship in life isn't with Jesus, then it's with an idol. That's simply put. If the most important relationship in my life is not with Jesus Christ, then whomever I have that relationship with, or maybe whatever, because it can be possessions, whatever, whomever, that is my idol. So of course we can be guilty of idolatry today in 21st century American Christianity church. And the idolatry may not, it doesn't show up. You may not have an idol on the dashboard of your car hanging from your, your mirror or in your yard or in your garden. The idolatry may be hidden in your heart. But it's always, whatever the idol is, idols always lead you and me to wrong choices that will pull us away from Christ. Always. Always. So John says, Little children, guard yourselves from these things. By the way, when he says to us, guard yourselves, that puts the responsibility on who? On me. My responsibility to keep myself from idols. But I'm glad the illustration showed him with his small group and they were holding him accountable as well because he opened up to them and said, I'm an idolater. He called it relationships, but I'm an idolater. Would you bow your heads with me and just for a moment, would you ask yourself, whoever you are, might I be an idolater in some way right now in my life? Let me say, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, and I hope that there might be somebody like that here that's one of our purposes is that to make it 
to invite you to be here, but if you're not yet a Christian, what that means is you're trusting in something or someone else than Jesus. But even if you are Christian, you know that. Is there something or someone who has taken over the greatest love of your heart other than Christ? I want you to take just a moment. Let's take, just be quiet, silent for a moment to get real with ourselves. We have to ask the question. So, okay, I've, I've identified. A number of people came up to me after the first gathering and said, I've been worshiping an idol. I didn't ask them to tell me what it was. So I just said, great, now do something about it. What do I do? Well, if you're not yet a Christian, meaning you have not yet put your faith in him alone, here's what you can do. You can simply, where you are right this very moment, right here, right now, Express to God from your heart that you are a sinner who needs a Savior. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no song and dance. Just right where you are. God, I'm a sinner, and I need the Savior, and the only one who qualifies to be my Savior is Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Believe in him alone. If you are a Christian, but you realize this morning that other things, other people, have taken first place in my heart. You simply confess that to him. You turn away from it. In the Old Testament, they would be told by the prophets to tear the idols down, destroy them, which may mean you might have to end the relationship or make the changes necessary to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. But let me encourage you, don't put it off. Father, just a handful of words at the end of this letter can convict so greatly, so sharply in our hearts as we consider idolatry. And it's so easy, God, in our culture in 21st century America to say, oh, I have no idols. There's nothing sitting on the dashboard of my car or hanging from my rearview mirror. There's nothing in my garden. No statues. But help us to realize, Father, that idolatry is anything, anyone who takes the place of Jesus. Idolatry is any time I don't recognize Jesus for who he truly is, as the Jews were doing on Palm Sunday. Help us, Father, to rid idols, rid them from our lives, and allow you, Jesus Christ, to be truly the Lord of heaven and earth, including the peace of earth upon which I stand and walk and sleep and work every single day, 24 hours a day. In your name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God. Love others, reach the world.